Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull and Amy Wallace. Ed Catmull was the co-founder and longtime president of Pixar. Part memoir and part advice for managers of creatives, Creativity Inc. tells the story of Pixar from dream to animation powerhouse. Then it gets into Catmull strategies for managing Pixar's creative success. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell, and I am a management consultant by way of industry. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's talk about the author. Who is Ed Catmull? Ed Catmull was born in Parkersburg, West Virginia in 1945 and grew up in Salt Lake City, where his father was a principal at a couple of different schools. He graduated in 1969 from the University of Utah with a BS in physics and computer science. He then uh, continued his studies there and ultimately received a PhD in computer science in 1974. While he was in that graduate program, he studied with Jim Clark, John Warnock, and Alan Kay. He took his first computer graphics classes there, and he first set a lifetime goal of making a computer animated feature film. He also made fundamental computer graphics discoveries while he was there, including his dissertation on texture mapping. As a graduate student, he made his first 3D computer-generated film, which was of his own hand, and that ultimately was in a feature film, 1976's sequel to Westworld Future World. His first job was leading a research lab at the New York Institute of Technology to improve computer animation. He then was recruited over to Lucasfilm, where his mandate was to merge technology and filmmaking. That graphics group that he led at Lucasfilm was ultimately spun out as Pixar with an investment from Steve Jobs. And he was the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios and ultimately the president of both Pixar Animation and Disney Animation after the Disney acquisition. He's been honored with five Academy Awards, and he retired in July of 2019 after 40 years working first at uh, Lucasfilms through to Disney, uh, essentially at one company through you know, a few corporate restructurings. And in case somebody's listening to this podcast in the year 2080, or they just are really not familiar with what goes on in the world, what is Pixar? Yeah, so Pixar is an animation studio. I mean, the full name actually is Pixar Animation Studios. At this point, it's a division within Walt Disney that makes 3D animated films. And originally, it was both a technology and software and filmmaking company that ultimately divested some of the the other aspects of it and really, you know, narrowed in on focusing on making, you know, great films and, you know, short films uh, using 3D animation on the computer. You touched on it a little bit in your description of Ed Catmull, but can you tell us about how Pixar got started? Where did it come from originally and how did it become the, the large company that it ultimately became? Yeah. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, George Lucas had a industrial light and magic within Lucasfilm, which focused on, you know, advancing, you know, 3D, 3D graphics in order to, well, it, it did a lot of different things, but one of the aspects was developing out 3D computer generation to improve the movies that, that George Lucas was making. And so that was where the company really started. Actually, during George Lucas's divorce, he needed money. And so that's actually a big part of how the company ended up getting spun out. And so they were searching for someone to buy it. Um, and ultimately, they actually were going to potentially sell it to GM. And it was going to, you know, they were going to use the technology in order to design cars. But then uh, that fell through. And then Steve Jobs, who had sort of 
been in the process earlier and then fallen out, ended up coming back and deciding to make the investment by the the company from George Lucas and create Pixar. He became the majority shareholder at that point, although he also carved out a significant amount of the stock for the employees. And from there, uh, Pixar was an independent company, largely just funded out of Steve Jobs' pocket for a very long time because it wasn't really generating a lot of revenue. They were trying to sell some hardware and software. Ultimately, their real success came with a partnership with Disney in order to launch Toy Story in 1995, the first computer animated feature film. And shortly after the premiere of Toy Story, I think actually like the day after they IPO'd Pixar actually and went and went public. And then uh, several years after that, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of this, um, but uh, Disney ultimately acquired uh, Pixar. And so that is you know where it sits now. And Ed Catmull and John Lasseter came into leadership positions both at Disney and in Pixar during the acquisition. So that was a big part of the um, revitalization of Disney animation through, through that acquisition. So you mentioned Steve Jobs, you mentioned Ed Catmull, the author, of course, and you mentioned John Lasseter. What were each of their roles in the success of Pixar? So let's know a little bit more about how Ed Catmull was managing the company as opposed to Steve Jobs, who was technically CEO, and John Lasseter, and who was probably the most well-known for the actual creation of the movies. Yeah, so I, I feel like <laughs> you, may, you may have nailed most of what, what I know about their exact division of labor. But as you mentioned, Steve Jobs, once he acquired the company, was uh, officially the CEO. But he was also the CEO of Next at the time and then ultimately you know, became CEO of Apple while he was CEO of Pixar. And so he was not really a hands-on CEO. He would come in, I think, like one day a week. And he you know, kept himself distanced from a lot of the decisions. He would sometimes come in when there were problems. And you know, he, kept, he kept himself informed of what was going on. But he was not taking the real hands-on approach. And so as president, Ed Catmull really was the leader of the company in, in, in most ways. He obviously had a background in a lot of the technology while John Lasseter had a background as a Disney animator. And so he came in with really the sort of story expertise, the ability to really tell a compelling story and make you know a movie that could really be successful. And so he had sort of the, cre- the, the strongest creative voice. Uh, Steve provided a lot of the money and did, you know, give leadership, you know, direction and things like that, but was largely hands off as CEO. And Ed was more, you know, operationally leading the company, making the decisions on, you know, growth and things like that. And I also think technically. So I I think that Ed Catmull was really the technical lead. Steve, in some ways, was the business lead in that he did a lot of the negotiating and the planning for the IPO along with the CFO. And then John Lasseter was, of course, the creative lead. That's kind of how I think about it. Is that fair? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I guess I would say it's it's almost like Ed Catmull is, is almost like sort of a COO kind of position in that, like, I feel like operationally, yeah, he was responsible for the technology and he was responsible for really the running of the company day to day. While yeah, Steve was taking on the big picture, like you know, how do we how do we fund it? So do we IPO? Do we you know negotiate you know to to sell to Disney? All of that was definitely driven by Steve. That's a great way to break it down. Okay, so Disney eventually purchases Pixar, and we've got a lot more to talk about from this book, but we're just getting through the the general overview of Pixar first. So Disney eventually purchases Pixar. They had a deal with Pixar before. Why didn't they just keep doing another deal with Pixar instead of purchasing them outright? Yeah, so I honestly don't remember all of the details of this section of the book. So if uh, Eli or Kopech, you want to add some more detail here, feel free to. But I, I'll, I'll give my give my rough rough feel for it, and then feel free to fill in some gaps. So 
The way it had worked was that when they first signed a deal with Disney, it was for, I believe it was three films. And then Disney got the rights to make sequels to those films going forward. But uh, Pixar still, you know, could make their own films going forward after that. They could have, you know, potentially signed on with some other distributor, et cetera. Pixar really needed the marketing and distribution from Disney, and that was what they were getting from the deal. Disney needed the great content, which is what they were getting from Pixar. But Disney also had this kind of um, poison pill of the ability to create sequels. And so Michael Eisner really pushed Pixar with that, and he created a new group. Um, I forget the name of it. I think it was like Creative 7 or something. I don't know. Do you, do you remember, Kopech? Yeah, I think it was something 7. It was like Source 7. I think it was Circle 7. Circle, Circle 7. seven. That sounds that. right. And so that was a new studio created literally just to create Pixar sequels. And so it was really Disney like flexing their muscles saying, we do have the rights to, you know, you're very close to your heart characters, especially for John Lasseter, as he had created a lot of these characters himself and had, you know, directed many of these movies, which Disney now had the rights to, you know, take his characters and do whatever they wanted with them. And so um, I think that was one, one source of like, you know, real controversy and potentially Pixar was going to break away. The The negotiations with Eisner were really harsh and they didn't go well and it seemed like nothing was going to work out. Ultimately, Michael Eisner left Disney and uh, at that point was replaced by Bob Iger. And it was Bob Iger who was really able to push forward the negotiations with Steve. And so the the first action that Bob took was to work with Steve to put ABC TV shows on iTunes. And they did that in like 10 days. And it really showed Steve that Bob was not Michael Eisner. He wasn't going to, you know, go through all these hoops and have all these layers of bureaucracy that were trying to establish how, how things would happen. Instead, you know, Bob was a decisive CEO who could really make a deal go through. And from there, Bob was able to convince Steve that an acquisition of Pixar was, was the right move and that it wasn't just about, you know, Disney coming in and taking over Pixar. It was really about Pixar coming in and fixing the problems of Disney animation. And so I think that was where John and Ed were able to get, you know, convinced as well was one, they did create a long list of things at Pixar that would not be changed by being part of Disney. And I think that was a really important thing for making them feel like they could preserve the culture. And two, they actually became the heads of Disney Animation Studios as well. And so there wasn't this competing, you know, Disney Animation versus Pixar. It was Ed and John that were in charge of both studios and could, you know, define clear niches for them so that both could really succeed going forward. And I just want to add a key point is that this is 2006 when they're doing the merger and Toy Story had come out in 1995. Between 1995 and 2006, Pixar had had number one movie after number one movie from Toy Story to A Bug's Life to Monsters, Inc. to The Incredibles to Finding Nemo. They kept having number one animation blockbuster. And Disney hadn't had any successful movies since the mid to early 1990s, animated movies at least. And so they really were, when they started out, in opposite sides in terms of the relationship to where they ended up when they merged. Obviously, you, you two had read the Bob Iger book last season, but it it seemed like recurring throughout this book was this conversation about how Disney had lost its way, right? Most of these people uh, featured in the book, Ed Catmull, John Lasseter, and many others at Pixar, had gotten started because of how Disney inspired them as children, and John Lasseter especially had worked as an animator at Disney and had tried to push computer animation and was ultimately let go from Disney because they didn't see that as the direction of the company. And it seemed like when Bob Iger came in that he 
saw that Disney really did not have the skill set in animation that the company was built on. And instead of trying to build that from the inside, I think looked to acquire it from Pixar. That was something for me as, you know, growing growing up with Disney and maybe I had grown out of animated movies a little bit uh, by the time that Disney seemed to have lost its way to see from the outside how they felt like they just needed to acquire in order to get their own skill set back, I thought was very interesting. Yeah, that's a great point, Eli. And I think it actually is kind of like the key to the whole book in a lot of ways. Like, I think the reason that Ed Catmull wrote this book in large part is because he wanted to avoid that, that like he wants to show how like his whole career after the acquisition and well, I guess actually after the launch of Toy Story was about figuring out how to create this creative culture that could continue to survive past the creators. So, you know, he felt like Disney had really fallen apart after Walt, you know, died. And so what were the problems there and how could he build a creative culture such that, you know, when he stepped down, it could continue to thrive? Okay, so I think we've gotten through the general overview of Pixar's history and Ed Catmull's involvement in that history. Let's talk about now some of the specific strategies and things that he implemented at Pixar to keep their creative juices flowing and keep their success going. So one of the big ones is the brain trust. What is the brain trust at Pixar and what's its role in the making of a film? Yeah, so the Brain Trust essentially is a meeting of different directors and producers who help give feedback at a few increments during the uh, development of a new animated film. So it's set up, I think, from, from my understanding of it, as they're in a room together, they will review the reels and then give some really honest feedback. And I think some of the reasons that Ed said that this was successful is, first of all, they try to remove the power dynamics. And this is something that I I felt was key. And as I try and consider uh, how this applies to my career, I I don't think that I have this opportunity too frequently. So they remove the power dynamics in the room. So there are more senior people in the room, but you don't have to address all of the notes, right? So it's not a, here's everything you need to change, go check off each of these changes and come back in three months and show us how you improved it. It's more an opportunity for them to share what they think is not working and to problem solve together what would make this better. But you do not need to come back in three months having addressed each of these exactly. And then I I also think that it's different uh, because most of the people in the room have produced or developed films before, right? So they are coming from that perspective of knowing what the director is going through, knowing what those decisions are made. I think just a position of authority, or sorry, not a position of authority, because that's explicitly what they say it's not, but just that position that's showing that they understand what this process is, so that the person that they're giving feedback to really trusts what they're saying a bit more. Those, those are just some elements that I thought was interesting as I think of what these kind of equivalent feedback meetings have looked like in my career that seemed a bit different. I have the, the quote that I think kind of sums it up. So how is the brain trust different from any other feedback mechanism? There are two key differences as I see it. The first is that the brain trust is made up of people with deep understanding of storytelling and usually people who have been through the process themselves. While the directors welcome critiques from many sources along the way, and in fact, when our films are screened in-house, all Pixar employees are asked to send notes, 
They particularly prize feedback from fellow directors and storytellers. The second difference is that the brain trust has no authority. This is crucial. The director does not have to follow any of the specific suggestions given. After a brain trust meeting, it is up to him or her to figure out how to address the feedback. Brain trust meetings are not top-down, do-this-or-else affairs. By removing from the brain trust the power to mandate solutions, we affect the dynamics of the group in ways I believe are essential. So I think you you really hit the nail on the, the head there, Eli, but I think it is those those two dynamics. One, the expertise that they, these people have been there and done that themselves, and not just expertise, but sort of empathy. They understand how difficult it is and how this is you know your baby, but then also they're not in charge. And so you you still are in charge as a director. It's just an opportunity to have these you know great creative insights to, to help you find your way as you're you know stumbling through the creation. Have you seen anything like the brain trust in your own career? So has there been something that's occurred at your job where you've had a meeting similar to one of these brain trust meetings? Yeah, for me, this was really interesting to read about. And because in management consulting, we have uh, team meetings where we have a partner, right? Um, or several partners attend to check in on where we are with the final deliverables for the client. And I would think that my company in reading this would think that they act like the brain trust, but the challenge there is the power dynamics. And I think that was, for me, what was really interesting was it did seem genuinely set up at uh, Pixar that you don't need to take the feedback and they do try and remove those power dynamics from the feedback that they're giving. You know, just as as one example, actually, when Ed went over to Disney, they had a similar note process in which uh, senior leaders at the company gave notes on the movies. But he said that that was set up uh, more as this checklist that you had to address everything. Multiple leaders would maybe give uh, different notes. And then there would be this, you know, competing priorities of this leader says this, this leader says this, and like, which box do we check? How do we address this all? And that was one of the main reasons that Ed seemed to think that Disney was really flailing was because they didn't have this good feedback mechanism. And I think in my career, I have felt more like I've experienced the second where, you know, I have multiple partners on a project and I'm trying to manage the feedback that I'm receiving from all of them. And because they are the senior leaders, frankly, they are writing my review at the end of a project. It doesn't feel like this healthy feedback conversation of how do we get to the right answer at the end? It feels a little bit more of this directive, you must do this. And then you have a meeting with another partner and they say something else. So for me to read about the brain trust, I it was encouraging and I haven't been able to put it in action yet, but I have been thinking about how can I take that perspective and that attitude and apply it to meetings with partners um, in consulting in the future so that we can approach it more like this team environment and more like we're just trying to get to the best product here. I think that the problem you run into a little bit there is that the partners actually are working on the project too, in a way. And so it's a little bit different from the brain trust where it is this, this outside perspective without the authority, like the partners do have the authority and they are actually actively engaged. I mean, they're, you know, building their relationship with the, the client and whatnot as well. And so they have like more of a direct stake in it too, in a way than like the brain trust does. So maybe the way that you could try and get at it is to meet with like other managers and things like that. And so have kind of like a brain trust of people who aren't on your project, but they can like help you just like 
point point out you know holes, ask questions, stuff like that. It's just that everyone's so busy, it's kind of hard to hard to find time for that that dynamic. Yeah, I think that, that's a really good point. That's something something that was central here is that it was people that weren't on the production for that film. So I appreciate that that feedback. Maybe that is something that I'll look forward to on the next project. And I was going to say, in my career. The thing that I think that's come closest to this concept would be that I recently ran a pre-mortem for a project that we're working on with my team. And so it was really just about like brainstorming, coming up with ideas for like how the project could fail, thinking through like what would like a great success look like, what would great failure look like, what are you know aspects we've seen in other projects where they failed. This isn't exactly so much the brain trust as much as like some of the, the post-mortem and some of the other other actions that they take at Pixar. Um, and again, with this, it really was just the team that is working on the project. But what we're about to start on uh, in my sort of product management group is doing a monthly design session where the designers and product and engineering are all in a room together. And we sort of review new designs for new concepts that aren't necessarily things that I'll even be working on. So it'll be kind of an opportunity to, to do some of that sharing. But one thing that I, I wonder about is should, you know, my manager and my manager's manager like not be in those sessions to make it like that there's not whatever one or a couple opinions that are, you know, trusted more strongly. But I mean, I think realistically, it is similar in the sense that there will be some product manager who really will be, you know, owning, executing that that vision. And so they will have the, the final say on it. But it is always hard when your you know manager tells you something to not take that as as prescriptive, even if it is intended to just, you know, raise questions. Yeah, it's Always, always difficult to not just take the feedback directly. Kopec, is this something that you've experienced? Actually, yeah. So uh, we have, of course, observations in teaching. So one person who's in some authority position comes and visits your classroom and gives you feedback on how it went. But what's also happened a couple of years ago is there's a faculty member that asked a couple of us who were not in any kind of authority position over him to come and observe his class and just give him general feedback on, on how we thought it went. And so that was, I guess, kind of similar in that, like our class is kind of like our film. And then we were people that weren't directly involved in his film that were giving him some constructive feedback. And of course, the only reason to do that would be because you, you want to improve. So it, it was totally with an attitude of, of let me have some candor, which I think is really key to the brain trust that that you can actually be honest. And I think, like David said, the only way to really be able to be honest is to not really be involved at all, right? And we, he's even in a different department, so we really weren't weren't involved at all in his class. So kind of similar. What are some other strategies that Catmull goes over in the book for managing creatives? Well, I think you were kind of getting at it right there, and it's it's not necessarily specific to creatives, but he certainly he. I feel like he does frame a lot of things around it being specific to managing creatives when it might just be generally good, good management ideas. And actually, I actually listened to a podcast where he said that he thinks a lot of these techniques could even be applied at a bank and things like that. So I think he does recognize that there's, it's not just about producing, you know, art that, you know, necessitates this kind of thing, anything with a lot of, you know, independent people, you know, developing things on their own could, you know, embrace these kinds of concepts, but, but candor and, and sort of almost radical candor is a big part of the position that, that he seemed, he seemed to institute a lot of different ceremonies in order to encourage that candor and to try and create that. It seems like, you know, the brain trust, but a lot of the other things that they talk about really were about getting people to open up and feel like you can give, you know, completely 
unvarnished feedback to someone who may be you know superior to you and that that will not be taken as a negative. It'll be taken as a positive. And it doesn't mean that they're going to listen to, you know, or execute on every single thing that you say, but they will listen to everything you say. And so, you know, having that opportunity for for everyone in the company to to give that feedback for everyone to then, you know, think it through and to not sugarcoat things. One of the specific examples they gave of, of this being a problem was in the shortly after the Disney acquisition, they went in and, and did sort of a brain trust style session and John Laster opened it by being positive about a movie, which like clearly was was not doing very well. And so then everyone else just went around and kept giving positive feedback because they'd heard John only give positive feedback and, you know, they wanted to just be nice and, and follow along with their new boss. And that was the exact opposite of what John wanted. He always starts with positive feedback, but he expects, you know, these to be very open, you know, a lot of candor sessions. And so, you know, you just always have to be careful. And it's it's hard to institute that, that it's easy for people to just follow along with, you know, the, the highest paid person in the room. Yeah, I'll jump in uh, just to agree with that first part short of what you were saying that a lot of this throughout the book, uh, Ed frames this as recommendations for managing a team of creatives or for driving creativity. And I would say that I've never really worked in a creative environment as he defines it, but I felt like this was all relevant for my work, right? Like, you know, we're defining solutions for clients, even like as you're making an Excel model that you still need all of these feedback mechanisms and you need this encouragement. And, you know, I'll stress like the to be open to failure uh, rather than having fears. Like all of this felt relevant in my career as well, even though I don't work in a creative career. But to that point, one of the other areas that he stressed was to not fear failure, right? Like, and I think that he in the book was, came across as very open and had a lot of humility. I actually, I really appreciated some of his phrasing and wordings in the book. He, you know, really made sure to give credit where credit is due, but also really clearly acknowledged any failures that had happened. Um, and I, I will say, you know, none of these were incredibly large failures because none of them were financial, right? Like Pixar had produced number one hit after number one hit. So none of the failures were looking back and saying, oh, why did that movie as a whole flop? It was more of a like, why was this process not working? And what do we need to rework during the movie in order to make the movie a success? But he he really stressed to not fear that failure, which is something that I've, I've seen as well. At, at uh, my last company, we had a framing of fail fast, fail cheap, which was meant to encourage people to go out and try something new and to test it. But then if it doesn't work to just admit that it's not working rather than continue to push on with it. And I think that he did that as well. And I'm looking back at the example now of, I think with Monsters, Inc., he talked about how like there were just many challenges along the way, but that people were coming to work excited about overcoming those challenges just because of the culture that they had set up at the at the office place uh, to embrace the failure and to quickly work to uh, build solutions to it. Yeah, that that's a really great point, and it definitely was another one of the the themes that came through throughout. I think the ones that he did consider like real failures to some extent were the the film that he had to shut down. 
And so I, f- I forget the details of that one, but it was like about a newt that um, was like the last of its kind. And then, you know, the scientists find someone. And so they, you know, bring, bring him someone that he's supposed to be his mate, but they don't get along or something along those lines. And so that like they had tried something with actually setting that group up in a separate space. And that like that he thought was maybe part of the failure too, was like that they were in this isolated space. They didn't have the opportunity to, to collaborate with people. And so that's kind of now naturally leading me into, into another one of the, the themes of, of dealing with creative people. He, he talked a fair amount about sort of the physical space and designing uh, around, you know, chance encounters and things like that, that, that Steve Jobs had taken a, a really big hand in the design of the Steve Jobs building, which was the their new offices as they as they'd grown out of their original space. And that uh, a big part of that was having like only one entrance. He even mentions that when when he and John moved to Disney and had offices, they they redesigned the space so that it was more welcoming. And so, you know, before there'd been like, you know, corporate suites for like the executives that were, you know, far away from everyone else and had like uh, secretaries that kept people from being able to get access to them. And so instead they they turned it around, they moved their offices down lower in the building. And they like tore out a bunch of walls and made like a big open space with like a coffee bar and stuff right in front of their offices with the windows open and just, you know, making clear that they're available, that they're working there and like literally just generating the chance for for those chance encounters for themselves by by virtue of having this, this space for people to congregate right outside their offices. So that that like physical space to allow for people to have chance encounters and stuff is really interesting. I wonder how Pixar is handling working remotely. That's a really good point. One, I, I will say one anecdote that I really liked from the Steve Jobs building is that Steve really wanted there to just be one bathroom because he was trying to force the bathroom encounters and kind of felt like if everybody always had to go to the same space and they, they had to push back against that and say like, that's just becoming a bit too much and a bit too unrealistic here. I don't know. I don't know anything about them working remotely. Is that any Kopec or Short? Do you know how they were handling that without chance encounters? I don't know anything about that, but I'd imagine based on the feeling you get about their culture in the book, that it would be a real challenge for them and might really negatively impact their creative output. So we've talked about a few of these strategies. One strategy that I really liked was the research trips. So this was about before you get into the details of a film, you go and you actually investigate the setting that inspires it. So for example, before doing the movie Ratatouille, they went to Paris and they actually got to go to some of the best restaurants in Paris and talk to the chefs and understand what it's like to be in the kitchen in one of these restaurants. When they were doing A Bug's Life, they got a special camera and they went down into the grass and were able to see what the colors are like, what it looks like from a bug's perspective to look up. So I, I thought these research trips were, were really interesting. And another interesting thing was that the Disney people didn't really seem to understand these research trips, that they were kind of like, well, the imagination comes from our brains. It doesn't come from what's out there in the world. But the, the research trips really informed the filmmaking at Pixar, maybe to a large degree because they had to be so precise and so detailed with computer animation in a way that you don't need to be in 2D animation. Yeah, the research trips honestly just sounded really fun. And I, something to all call out that I think all three of us have mentioned with some of these strategies is 
Something that I found really interesting is how he had applied many of these strategies after the acquisition of Disney. So he showed how taking some of these management criteria that had worked at Pixar and applying that to Disney really did help turn around the animation studios at Disney. And that that's something that really helped convince me that some of these management strategies actually did work. Yeah, that's a great point. We should we should acknowledge that, you know, Tangled and Frozen and whatnot came out, you know, it was quite a few years, but after that, that transition. And it did seem like, at least in terms of box office success and whatnot, Disney definitely made a made a big turnaround after Ed and John joined. Another interesting strategy was that of mental models. And there were mental models that directors would use to get themselves in the shoes of the film. And then there were also mental models that people from the standpoint of production or from a more technical role took on. And Ed didn't even always like some of the mental models that his colleagues would provide to him. But he says that in general, it's important just to have a mental model. I'm wondering if either of you have mental models that you use at your work or alternatively, if there were some mental models you really appreciated from the book. So I really liked this section about mental models, but I'll admit that I don't actually have one that I use at work. And having read this book in the past week, I haven't had time to apply any of these. As a skier, I really liked the mental model about being a skier, that if you tighten up too much, you're going to crash. So how do you get into a flow with the work that you're doing? I think there was also uh, one that resonated with me, which was this idea of you're running through a dark tunnel and you know that at some point you're going to be in the middle of the tunnel and you're not able to see light on either side, but you just have to keep on going straight and you know that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. I think resonates with the idea of you kind of get into that with projects and consulting as well when you're deep in the middle of a project and you know that you're going to come out on the other side but sometimes it can be hard to see how that happens and you just have to have that confidence. None of these are things that I use though. And I, I think that they it was kind of interesting and maybe that's something that is different with a company full of actual creatives and people who think more visually and think in stories uh, that they have those mental models ready to go. Do either of you make use of mental models or do you think you'll use any of these mental models that were in the book? So it's funny, the like classic, sort of mental model people give for product management is that it's the CEO of the product. And I actually think that that's wrong. I, I actually have my internal one is that it's the consultant for the product. And, you know, obviously that's colored by my own background, but product managers do not have authority. They, the CEO can like fire everyone in a the company. They like really do have that control. Um, and so like consultants, it's more like you're an external person that's like doing analysis, giving advice, and you're sort of leading without that authority. And so that's like the the mental model I've put for myself is that like, I don't, you know, the engineers do not report directly to me. I cannot fire them. Um, you know, not that I want to, but, you know, I'm sure there, there could be cases where I would, and I would not have that authority. And so instead, I just have the ability to come up with ideas and to convince people that these are good ideas and, you know, prove it to them with data and whatnot in order to, to get them to actually execute on it. Many years ago, I was recording a instructional video series and I had an editor who was helping me. This is my first time recording a video series. Ultimately, the video series never got released. That's another story. But anyway, he kept telling me he wanted me to think about it like as if I was going on a journey and I was leading the people watching the videos on that journey and guiding them along waypoints and along 
uh, clear signals and directions from from each beginning of the video to each end of the video. And I sometimes still use that mental model when I'm teaching a class. So I kind of think through what are the waypoints, the signs to tell people they're going in the right direction, and how can I give them proper directions to get from one waypoint to the next waypoint. So I think about myself as a little bit of maybe a conductor uh, as I'm as I'm going through teaching class. So another strategy, creative strategy that, that's just kind of imbued throughout the book is transparency. And we've also we've talked about this using another word earlier, which is candor. So how do you be direct with people, according to Ed Catmull, without stifling their creativity because they because you're being too harsh or too critical? So I don't remember what he specifically said here, but I do think that I was surprised throughout the book how candor he was in how he talked about some of the mistakes and some of the challenges that he faced, right? Like you, I think going in, you might think as the president of Pixar, this animation company, right? You know, finding Nemo and such, right? Like you're going in and thinking that it's all all going to be warm and fuzzy, but he was very open throughout about like, for example, kind of having to let go the initial Toy Story 2 team in order to rework it and put John Lasseter back in the role to produce uh, Toy Story 2. And there were, there were just a few instances like that where it was just very honest about something is not working. And sometimes that requires you to change up the team. Um, and I, I think I was just a little surprised at how like cutthroat that seemed to be just because you would you would have thought that it would be warm and fuzzy going into the book but do either of you uh have something more specific as to how he suggested approaching that candor first on the 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 cutting the team what he says is that that comes because the director has lost the confidence of the crew and so that that's where he said he set the line it's not about you know everyone gets lost everyone struggles but oftentimes you still see like everyone coming in and being really excited to work on it, even though, you know, like they're in the weeds and there's, you know, it's clearly not in a great place right now. They're still like motivated and going after it. And it's it's seen that the director has lost the confidence of the team that really leads Ed to know that he has to has to shut it down and find someone else. In terms of the candor, I found one quote that I, th- I think somewhat answers what uh, what Kopak was getting at, but. It says, candor isn't cruel. It does not destroy. On the contrary, any successful feedback system is built on empathy, on the idea that we are all in this together, that we understand your pain because we've experienced it ourselves. The need to stroke one's own ego to get the credit we feel we deserve, we strive to check those impulses at the door. The brain trust is fueled by the idea that every note we give is in the service of a common goal, supporting and helping each other as we try to make better movies. And so I think that really is that empathy is is such a big part of the candor being something that people can actually take. So it's it's not personal. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm saying this idea is confusing or I don't, you know, believe that this character would act in this way at this point. And it's not saying, "Oh, like you failed." It's saying, "I'm confused" or whatever. Like, you know, what what can we do in order in order to get there? And so it's all about that like we have a common goal of making a great film that I think makes this a lot easier in some ways. And I'm sure there are times when people take things personally, but ultimately recognizing that everyone is uh, sharing that common goal of making the best thing for ultimately the audience to enjoy, I think makes it a little bit easier. And so I think that's the sort of key is making it not personal, making it about the product. And so, you know, obviously I'm not making films, but can certainly run into similar things where, you know, some software wasn't 
developed to, to the specifications that were requested. And so I do have to be able to give that feedback. But ultimately, you know, the engineers and I all want like something that makes our customers, you know, happy and able to, to take the actions that we want them to. The whole idea of candor in this book reminded me a little bit of the idea of candor from the book Startup Nation, which is about Israeli business. The concept in that book is that people in Israeli business often previously served in the Israeli military because they have mandatory military service. And so they're, they're tough people and they're, they're able to take feedback. You can tell them exactly how you feel about something and they can take it. This was like the warm and fuzzy version of that, where it's like these creatives, they need to be able to take the feedback because ultimately they have to get to a good point in the story. Uh, they need to be supported when they get that feedback. They need to be supported in the sense that they need to feel like you're helping them get going in the right direction more so than just telling them that they're wrong. And I can see how in a creative pursuit, it's so important that when somebody does go astray, somebody's able to check that because you can go down a rabbit hole that just never ends if nobody checks you early on when you start really going in the wrong direction. That's interesting. That feels to me almost like the opposite in that like the the military dynamic would be more like you're accepting orders like this is like a, you know you have a superior officer and so they have told you to do something and you need to do it and you do not get to question that at all as opposed to the you know Pixar concept of candor really is about like the director is still the leader this is just a lot of you know people who've been there before asking questions showing where they're confused but yeah that ability to be able to accept it i think is is definitely important but I think that the distinction here is that it is about knowing when not to or when to like sort of go beyond it too. And so they, they had kind of an interesting example with with Brad Bird where there was some pushback on on one of the scenes of, of The Incredibles where the husband was was yelling at the wife and the husband is just much larger than the wife and she yells back. But like that, what he realized was people had a problem with it and it was because of the size dynamic. But the wife, you know, is Elastigirl or whatever she can stretch. And so he just fixed it by not changing a single line in the movie, but just having her grow, you know, with her her physical presence so that she was bigger than he was when she was pushing back. And then it was the exact same conversation, but just like changing the the proportions on screen made it feel like it was an even match as opposed to like this, you know, domineering husband yelling at his wife. Just to continue on this conversation, I I think what was difficult for me maybe was that it was it wasn't clear to me how they make that more accepting to everybody. Right. Like I, I hear what you're saying in that, like, oh, you just give feedback on the product rather than on the person. But the reality is that feedback feels personal even if it is on the product. And that was something that rang. It, I just wasn't entirely bought in that people at Pixar are never personally offended by feedback, right? Like you can have a great feedback culture and they certainly do focus on quality and are trying to get to the best product in the end. And it seems like everyone's bought in on that. But I, I would be shocked if you spoke with individuals at the lower levels of Pixar and everybody agreed and said, oh, yeah, like I've, I've never felt personally attacked with any of the feedback. It did feel like something that maybe is a bit idealistic in how he's thinking about everybody is just open to it. One element of the one story in the book that brings together both this strategy, the strategy of candor, as well as another strategy they had of having full day company retreats was what was called notes day, which was a day where they took the whole company 
together. Well, they put the whole company together and said, you don't need to actually do your regular job today. Instead, what we're going to do is we're all going to meet. And this was based on feedback that they'd already received through suggestion boxes before the day and talk about ways we can make the company better, talk about ways we can specifically reduce the budget on future movies. And they, they just took a whole day for company feedback. And I thought that was really interesting. Did you ever have something like that in your own careers? No. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly had, you know, quarterly sessions or whatever. And like, you know, everyone's open to ask questions and, you know, have had, you know, questions that I've asked be answered by, you know, CEOs and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I think lots of places have, you know, some culture of accepting, you know, feedback from everyone. But I've never been in an office that that shut down for a day to just focus on like trying to improve processes outside of kind of the offsite dynamic where that tended to be focused on like one particular thing rather than just like a general like everyone submit where they think problems are and then come together in groups to try and solve them. There tended to be like each year at my consulting firm, we would have, you know, a, a couple day offsite where we would go to like Puerto Rico or Jamaica or something and, you know. Mostly it was fun, but there would be, you know, a few sessions and there'd be like a speaker and, you know, there'd be some uh, thing we were focused on that we were trying to like improve within the culture, but it was more like top down rather than like bottom up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I will say, first of all, in his description of this notes day offsite, I wrote to myself, this sounds exactly like the type of offsite that my company, my management consulting company would help set up. Like down to the prompt questions. I was like, I have seen slides that have these exact prompt questions on them. Like, I actually wonder if this is something that my company helped with. And then he specifically called out, he was like, we did not use any external management consulting firm to do this. So I was, I was kind of entertained by that. But in my, in my personal experience, I think it's been very similar to Shorts where the, I've been at companies that take the time and make the investment for everybody to have a one day or multi day offsite, but it always seems to be more focused on fun and bonding and just creating these lasting memories and retention for employees and this assumption from management as to what people want and what people need rather than this bottoms up that they were looking for, which was like, help us solve these problems or being very transparent about what our goals are that we're trying to you know, reduce the number of person weeks that it takes to produce a movie or something. So help us solve this. That actually did sound pretty unique to me. And in that they actually really started to implement some of the solutions, you know, he was able to share some specific ideas that came out of that, that they started the next week to implement. Um, and the fact that that all was home baked, and it was management truly asking for feedback did sound quite different from if if you were to just like look at the chapters of this and say like oh like a full day offsite meeting like yeah i've seen that before his description of it seemed pretty different from anything i've seen before so we've talked about a lot of the strategies that ring true to us were there strategies in the book that didn't ring as true or elements of the book that didn't sound as convincing to you so i think one thing that just hindsight makes a little bit strange is the parts where he talks about contracts at Disney and Pixar. So at Pixar, historically, no one was ever on contract. 
that meant, you know, everyone was at will and, you know, could be hired or fire or quit or be fired at any at any point. And when Disney acquired Pixar, they really wanted John and Ed to sign on to, you know, multi-year contracts because they were, you know, obviously critical to the success of the of the company thus far. And they they pushed back and, the, and they kept that from happening. And then when they joined Disney, they actually tried to, to shut down the contracts at Disney as well. And, and they they said that they wanted to do this in order to encourage um, like people to do what they love, really, that like you shouldn't work here just because you're on a contract. You should work here because this is what you want to do. And, you know, it, it should be like the, the passionate thing. And, you know, th- that all that all sounds well and good. But then in 2017, there was a lawsuit that like Lucasfilms and Disney and Pixar settled around the not collude or basically they colluded in order to not hire each other's employees. And so it just felt very weird. Like he had this whole like dynamic of being so good to his people. And then like, ultimately it turns out uh, he had like directly colluded to like keep his people from getting, you know, salary raises and stuff like that. So I don't know, that just like puts like kind of a, a dark cloud over, over some of this. But other than that, I found most of it to be very compelling. Yeah, I agree. I I learned about that lawsuit as we were reading this book, just doing some googly on the side, and then came across the chapter where he really stresses all of the contracts. And I was, and it was like, you know, within a few hours of me reading up about this lawsuit, and I was just like, this is very strange. And the book came out before that lawsuit, so I, you know, I just kind of wonder: was he anticipating something? Was he trying to? share his story there before the lawsuit. The other thing that I kind of mentioned this earlier, but he he really stresses this need to embrace failure and to be open to failure. And, you know, one one story from that that we haven't mentioned that I that I do think was interesting was when they after the Disney acquisition, when they asked one of the technical leads at Disney to reconfigure something, they said it would take six months. And they were like, what do you mean this is going to take six months? Like this, we do not have six months. That's all that's left in this film. And then what they found is that it was actually only going to take two to three days. But then the rest of that time would be spent on testing to ensure that there were no issues with it. Um, And he was like that, if it only takes two to three days to build this, then it would only take two to three days to fix any issues if they do come up. So like, let's just build that version, right? So that that's just like an example of how he was like, you can embrace failure, it's fine. But then Pixar not having any flop of a movie, I just like wonder how he would have reacted and how that would have changed the narrative at all if there had been a true flop of a movie. One issue I have with the book is I don't think it addresses enough how much a lot of their great directors and writers and technical talent as well just had innate ability. And the fact that maybe you can have all these strategies in place, but if you don't have the right people with that innate ability to begin with, you probably can't create the kind of films that that Pixar created. And so I think there should have been more probably about hiring and how you actually are able to see somebody or recognize somebody that has this great creative talent. For example, uh, this is just a total aside, but John Lasseter had a inappropriate behavior scandal and was forced out of Disney a few years ago. And Pixar just had their first movie come out that was not very successful, both critically and financially, called Onwards this year. And it was the first movie that he was not involved in at all during its creative process. So it poses the question, how much of Pixar's success was due to that person's creative leadership. Obviously, there were tons of great creative people underneath that person as well. But how much 
came from his creative leadership. And now that that one indispensable person is not there, will they not be as successful in the future? I don't know. I'm just posing it as a question that I don't think was really addressed well by the book, which is how do you, first of all, identify people who have great creative talent that you want to have at your company? And secondly, how much of success really comes from that as opposed to all these strategies that he lists? I had not thought about that. And that's a really interesting and and good point. And I think probably John was the one who was making a lot of the, the creative hiring decisions. And so that's probably why a lot of that isn't in the book. Although I guess come to think of it, he doesn't really talk about recruiting all that much at all, other than to say, uh, hire people that are smarter than yourself. So he talked, he talked about recruiting Alvi and how, uh, during the interview, he was like, wow, this guy's better than me. Maybe he should have my job. And he said that, you know, a lot of other managers would, would get afraid there and say, you know, I don't want to bring in someone who could potentially replace me, but to just like get outside your comfort zone and go ahead and say, yeah. So that, that's like, that was really the only recruiting feedback that I remember him giving, which is a good one, but just, yeah, definitely doesn't tell you how you find the people that are creative enough to create these incredible films. Yeah, I actually remember writing at the start of the book, I think when he was talking about that example, you know, does he have any recommendations for hiring? And I thought that that might come at some other point in the book, and it definitely didn't. So that is, that's a really good point of something that was missing. And to that point, he didn't talk about coaching too much throughout the book or how to help people improve, right? Like, as I mentioned, like there were several instances when he talked about having to uh, fire a director. And often the uh, resolution there was to bring John Lasseter back in, right? And that they had kind of this one option that always existed. And there were just a few examples where he was just like, oh, like we tried with somebody else and it just didn't work. So we had to fire them. And I, I think there were two stories of that happening and not too many stories about training people. He, he does talk about Pixar University, but it sounded like the objectives of Pixar University were, was more to like just get people outside their comfort zone, you know, teach the people from finance how to draw so that you think differently, not because you're going to actually be an artist or something um, and to connect people across the company rather than to truly build and educate people. So that probably does also seem to be a theme that was missing from the book. Absolutely. All right. So we're coming to the end of our usual episode length. I want to know, is there anything else about the book that we didn't mention that you wanted to tell our listeners? There was one quote in the introduction that I just absolutely loved. And I think like flipped a switch for me. And I guess the theme was throughout, but I I just want to share that quote. So it's, we start from the presumption that our people are talented and want to contribute. We accept that without meaning to, our company is stifling the talent in a myriad unseen ways. Finally, we try to identify those impediments and fix them. And I just really like that idea of thinking like your job as a manager is to eliminate barriers and help people be the best that they can be. And you're, you should go in with that assumption that you, given the conversation we just had, that you have the best team in place and that you have incredibly strong individuals and you just need to let them act. And that's something that I, I really took to heart from the introduction. It didn't come up again in force throughout the book, um, but I really liked that sentence. Yeah, that was, that was a great point. Another one I liked was around the idea that, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read the quote. So imagine an old heavy suitcase whose well-worn handles are hanging by a few threads. The handle is trust the process or story is king. 
a pithy statement that seems on the face of it to stand for so much more. The suitcase represents all that has gone into the formation of the phrase, the experience, the deep wisdom, the truths that emerge from struggle. Too often, we grab the handle and, without realizing it, walk off without the suitcase. What's more, we don't even think about what we've left behind. After all, the handle is so much easier to carry around than the suitcase. Once you're aware of the suitcase handle problem, you'll see it everywhere. People glom onto words and stories that are often just stand-ins for real action and meaning. I thought this was a really good one because I've I read a lot about like building culture and they tend to focus on like these concepts around like having these these key phrases that people repeat. And I think it's a really good point though that sometimes those exist at companies and they're totally meaningless also. And so that like if if trust the process is all you're saying, and then like that, that like trust the process feels feels pretty. I mean, basically he he says later on that like this was a big problem that we kept we kept saying trust the process and not realizing like part of the process was like changing in order to you know succeed. And so you know you need to like actually understand more deeply than just a three word phrase what it is that like the culture is. I think that's great, and um, I'll just add in that I think the really good accompaniment to this book is the movie, The Pixar Story, which is available for free on Netflix right now, streaming actually. Uh, but it, it goes through a lot of the history of Pixar, similar to how this book does, doesn't get into as much the creative strategies, but you'll find a lot of the characters that you met in the book actually in real life speaking, and it, it's a nice accompaniment. Actually, I have one question specifically for you, David, because I know you read the book with me to Pixar and Beyond by Lawrence Levy a few years ago. And this might be a little bit gossipy, but Lawrence Levy was a CFO of Pixar from like 94 to 2006. And he wrote this whole book about the IPO and about creating the business plan and kind of made it seem like he was really at the core of a lot of these decisions that were being made in the 90s at Pixar. He's not even mentioned in Creativity Inc. Why do you think that is? And after reading this book, does to Pixar and Beyond by Lawrence Levy read less true to you? Um, do you know what the timing was for when each book was released? Did Two Pixar and Beyond come out before? No, Two Pixar and Beyond came out in 2016, and this book, Creativity Inc., came out in 2014. Okay, got it. So that was, so Lawrence Levy wrote his book to respond to Creativity Inc., presumably. No, I, I actually, I made the same note. I was just like, CFO? Like, he, he actually, he doesn't, he never mentions him by name. He, he does mention him in one paragraph. Yeah, he I talks saw about, that. Like, during the Disney acquisition, the CFO came over to like help with their finances or something. I don't know. Like it was, it was kind of a weird, like, oh, it's funny that like he manages to mention him just once. But yeah, I, I thought it was very interesting because yeah, Levy makes himself uh, seem very integral in his book. And from Ed Catmull's perspective, seems like he didn't do anything. And I wonder if that's because Levy was brought in by Steve Jobs. And I think he probably did work more closely with Steve on the IPO, on the acquisition with Disney. Like he worked on sort of those Steve level things rather than the Pixar level things. And so from Ed's perspective, probably didn't see the CFO as really being anything other than like Steve's financial henchman who, you know, told him how much he could spend on given things or whatever. And, you know, then Levy wrote his own book to try and try and respond and show, you know, how involved he was in a lot of things. But yeah, I, I did. I did find it interesting that he was just, you know, not not mentioned given, you know, obviously CFO for, you know, many years of the company uh, through, you know, IPOs and acquisitions and stuff like that clearly is an important role. But just not from Ed's perspective, I guess. Yeah, I read it the same way as you, that he was kind of Steve's guy, and maybe maybe there's even some bad blood between him and Ed, uh, perhaps. Anyway, so big final question for the two of you. Do you recommend this book? And if you do, who should read the book? Yeah, I, I would recommend it. Um, in terms of business books, I found that 
this was fun and enjoyable because it had all of these anecdotes and references to movies that presumably uh, the reader along with the rest of the world really do, do love. So it, it was fun to kind of see the behind the scenes there. And then I felt like I benefited from this book working in a large corporation. And as I said, he stresses that this is for creatives and managing creatives but I felt that it was relevant for me as well um, with how to navigate a large company. Um, so for for those two reasons, I'd recommend this. Yeah, I'd, I'd 100% agree. I would I would highly recommend it. It's, I think, one of the more fun and interesting business books I've read. And I think Eli hit the nail on the head for, for why. I think that just the fact that I've seen all the movies that they're talking about, um, maybe not all, but pretty much all the movies that they talk about. So the, the anecdotes just like, sit in my mind a lot more clearly. And I just think he does give a lot of good advice for, for how to manage things. And some of them are a little bit counterintuitive or a little bit different from how I've, I've read them in, in, in other books. So I thought it was a really good book. I would recommend it definitely if you're interested in Pixar, but also to any manager, regardless of whether it's creative people or you feel that you're managing creative people. I think most you know knowledge industry jobs now are to some extent creative also. Yeah, especially if you're in the film industry, you know the animated film industry, then yeah, I think it's like a, a must read. And then the final thing I'd say is that there's actually the, the final chapter of the book is basically just a set of bullet points for every key insight and management theory that Ed Catmull has. And so if you don't have time to read the whole book, I would definitely recommend just reading that like last few pages. Absolutely. And I'd recommend the book as well. I think that it is a really fun read, certainly the first half with the history of Pixar. And if you're at all involved in management in any way, even if it's just as co-program director of a computer science department, it is has a lot of insight that you can actually apply to businesses beyond just creative businesses, like Eli said earlier. Okay, so for next month, we're going to be reading the book Let It Go, My Extraordinary Story from Refugee to Entrepreneur to Philanthropist by Stephanie Shirley and Richard Asquith. This is actually about a British entrepreneur who really went from rags to riches, built an incredible software company over the course of several decades and became a pioneer, not only as a female in business, but also as a female in technology. So I think this is really going to be really interesting and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Is there anything that either of you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you? You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And you can follow me on Twitter at emich 46 and you can follow me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Well, it's been really great having everyone this month. We love having you on the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, your podcast player of choice. It really helps with getting the word out there about our show. And we'll see you next month.